Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, as we continue in worship together this morning, let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 together this morning. Thank you to Dr. Aiken and Dr. Milioni and Dr. Shaddix and the rest of the faculty for just allowing me the opportunity to come up here and to, to continue in worship and to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, I never thought I would see the day when Dr. Shaddix said the word go dogs, and so it's already been a great morning together. Super excited to, to walk with you through this text. Well, like Dr. Shaddix said, uh, Catherine and I are both graduates of the University of Georgia. And a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Costa Rica as part of a study abroad program. I was there for about a month taking a couple Spanish classes. And while we were there, we had the chance to go around to some of the coffee farms there in Costa Rica, some of the best coffee in the world. And, And one farm in particular, as we were walking around, the farmer was showing us everything that he had there. And if you've ever seen coffee trees, it looks like little cherries that hang off the tree, aptly named coffee cherries. And so what these are, it's little red husk, and on the inside is the coffee bean. And so this farmer was showing us his process of how they would go around, pick these coffee cherries, and put them in this little bowl. And I've got a picture for you of me attempting to do what these farmers did every day. They have this bowl of hundreds and hundreds of coffee cherries, and what they would do is they would take this bar that I'm holding right there, about 20 to 30 pounds, and for hours they would spend breaking up the husk, because on the inside they were getting to the coffee bean. Well, as this particular farmer was telling us about this bowl and this bar, he said that not only did they use this for farming, but they also used this for dating. I was like, that's really interesting. So he said, if you were a young man in Costa Rica and you wanted to date a young lady, what you would do is you would go and ask her father, many of them farmers, And he would simply take you out back to where this bowl was. He would give you this bar and you and he would go back and forth for as long as it took to get through all the bowl. And if you were able to outlast the father, you were able to ask out the daughter. Now you might have some awkward interaction with in-laws later on, but at least you got to date the daughter, right? If the father, however, outlasted you, you remained single. And so as he was telling this, I couldn't help but think about people in my lives who have multiple daughters, such as the Eckers. The Eckers are our care group leaders. Bro, could you imagine the teenage years with four teenage daughters? You'd be out back every night. You wouldn't have to go to the gym anymore. Eckers, like, I wouldn't do that unless they had some Jordans, specifically four gardens, right? But as the farmer was telling this, he said the reason that these Costa Rican dads did this was because they believed that if a young man was able to endure, if he was able to persevere in this task, that it said enough about his character in the rest of his life that they were willing to let their daughters date him. And as we walk through this vineyard this morning that is on Isaiah chapter 5, just like these Costa Rican fathers were looking for one thing from these potential suitors, our Heavenly Father is looking for one thing in particular from us. He is looking for us to be fruitful vines. That's the one thing that he's asking from us is vines in this text. So let me read this text for us, starting in Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. The text reads, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil and cleared it of stones, and he planted it 
with the finest vines. He even built a tower in the middle of it and dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Verse 5. Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in, he expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. The main idea that I want to propose to you this morning from this text is this. God patiently waits and expects for us to bear good fruit through his gracious provision of Christ. God patiently waits and expects for us to bear good fruit through his gracious provision of Christ. So as we take a walk through this vineyard this morning, I want to show you three actions that the Lord takes as our beloved vineyard keeper. Number one, the Lord devotes himself to us, his finest vines. The Lord devotes himself to us, his finest vines. Up until this point in Isaiah, these first four, now into five chapters, Isaiah has been contrasting the glory of God with the sins of Judah. And so he talks about the idolatry of Judah, how they have been an unfruitful vine or like an unfaithful wife. And this really comes to a head in Isaiah chapter 6. You're familiar with it, Isaiah's call. He's in the throne room of God. He's seeing God's glory, and his response is, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so these first several chapters of Isaiah are setting up this contrast between the glory of God and the sins of Judah. Well, here Isaiah begins this parable, and he is, again, contrasting these two things. He begins verse 1. He says, I will sing a song about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. And we see later in the passage that this loved one is God, and it is his vineyard, the people of Israel who are unfruitful. You know, Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, is using creativity and skill to present an unpleasant message in a pleasant way. You know, for example, it might be like when I go to my wife at the beginning of the semester and I say, honey, I love you. By the way, I have about 25 books I need to buy for seminary this semester, but I love you. Isaiah is presenting this unpleasant message in a pleasant way. And so he tells this song, he tells this parable. And this imagery of the vines or the vineyard is common throughout the Old Testament. Even in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 3.14 talks about this vineyard that has been devastated by its leaders, the men of Judah. Isaiah 4.2 talks about Israel being a branch of the Lord that produces fruit. Earlier in Psalm 80, the psalmist pleads with God to restore Israel as a vine that has been trampled. Jeremiah loves to talk about the vine and vineyards, specifically in chapter 12. He addresses the leaders who have made this vineyard that is Israel to be desolate. So this, this language of the vine or language of the vineyard would be very common to God's people. But if you've ever planted a vineyard or planted a garden, you know that it is a lot of work. Planting a vineyard demands devotion from the vineyard keeper. 
It reminds me of when I was growing up, uh, my grandfather had a garden. And I, looking back, I would like to think that I helped a lot, but help might be too strong of a word for what I did in the garden. For example, most of the time when I was help in the garden, he would ask me to go pick the blackberries. So he had this row of blackberries that were adjacent to the garden. And one day I asked him, I was like, Paul, Paul, why do you want me to pick the blackberries? There, there's so many other things to be done in the garden. You get to do all those things. He said, well, Kenneth, I know that if you pick the blackberries and go give them to your grandmother and ask her, she'll make us both a blackberry cobbler. He was like, if I ask her, she won't do it. And I was like, wow. And grandmothers everywhere are like, yeah, that's the way it works. But my grandfather was willing to do the work year round in his garden. He didn't just get to pick the blackberries whenever he wanted to like I did. In, in the spring, he was preparing the soil. He was tilling it. In the summer, he was making sure there was enough water during the dog days of August. And in the fall, he was making sure all the fruits, all the vegetables were brought in before the freeze came. Well, God here does the same thing. The Lord is willing to do the work as our great vineyard keeper. Verse 2, it says he broke up the soil and he cleared it of stones. This process from, from taking your land to, to make it to where it would be able to produce fruit as a vineyard was about a two to three year process. And this breaking up of the stones would be backbreaking work. These stones here in verse two likely used in verse five to make the wall that's used as well. But he continues, it says, he planted it with the finest vines. And we learn later that this is God's people. God's people are the vines that make up the vineyard here. It says he even dug a tower, he built a tower in the middle of it. This, this watchtower used to watch out for the foxes or the thieves that, that might come into the garden to take the fruit, to take the vegetables. And it says he even dug out a wine press there. This wine press would have two parts. The top part used for trampling the grapes and the bottom part would catch the juice, also store it in order to be used for wine later on. So, so all of these actions here, verse two, all of them are making the single point that there was nothing left undone in the vineyard to guarantee a sound crop. Nothing was left. God spared no expense in his vineyard to guarantee a sound crop. Yet the end of verse two says that he expected it to yield good grapes and it yielded worthless grapes. This word that's translated expected here in your version, you might see he looked for or he waited for. This is the Hebrew word kava. Normally when this word is used, it's used of people waiting or expecting on God. For example, Job uses it five times as he waits on the Lord, as he expects the Lord to work. Perhaps the most famous use in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah 40, verse 31. It says, those who wait, those who expect on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. But here in this text, it's used of God. God is expecting, God is waiting. And Isaiah writes it three times. See it, verse two, verse four, verse seven. This repetition in this passage, it leads Matir and other commentators to say that this repetition is emphasizing the patience of God as he waits. In other words, Isaiah is saying that God waits, God waits, God waits. He expects, he expects and expects. The picture is like that of the good father in Luke 15, the good father who is pacing back and forth every day as he waits on his prodigal son to return home. He patiently waits. And that's the picture we get of God in this passage as he waits on us as his vineyard vines to produce fruit. 
And because God knows the future, his waiting is always an expectation. God patiently waits for good fruit to come to his vineyard. And when it does, it is all of grace. He is the one who has provided for his vineyard. He is the one who is protected. And he patiently waits for it. This image is so beautiful. And so if you're in here this morning or watching, this is the picture of what a good father looks like. Whether you've had a good father or a bad father in your life, this is the epitome of what God is saying in the Bible, that that he loves his people. There is no length he is not willing to go for his people. He has loved them with an everlasting love. He has devoted himself to them. And therefore, if there is anything good in us as vines, it is due to the devotion of our heavenly vineyard keeper. That's the first action in the garden. The Lord devotes himself to us, his finest vines. Action number two, the Lord demands a verdict from us, his unfruitful vineyard. Verses three and four. And beginning with verse three, there is a shift in this passage. Isaiah has been talking about God in the third person. He says, the one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. But verse three, God begins talking in first person. It says, so now residents of Jerusalem, men of Judah, Please judge between me and my vineyard. Verse 4, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? The people of Israel are unfruitful. This this mention of bad or worthless fruit here in verse 4, also back in verse 2, it's explained in the rest of Isaiah chapter 5. So we don't have time to go through verses 8 through 25, but the whole context of this passage is that Isaiah presents a list of six woes between verses 8 through 25, and these are the the sins of Judah that he is describing. For example, he mentions land-grabbing, verse 8. He mentions moral relativism, verse 20. So again, these sins of Judah compared with the glory of God in Israel is unfruitful. And then this question, verse 4, what more could I have done for my vineyard? This is the central question of these first five chapters of Isaiah, perhaps even broader, the whole Old Testament. God says, what more could I have done? When in reality, he has done everything. He has given himself. He has devoted himself. He has redeemed his people from Egypt when they would not follow him. He has constantly been their king through the wilderness. Even when they wanted other kings, he has always been there for them. What more could I have done? He's done everything to provide for this vineyard. He's prepared the soil. He has protected it. Yet, like an unfaithful wife or an unfruitful vineyard, Israel has not loved him back. They have broken this covenant that God has made with them. But my friends, God wants and desires fruitful vines in his vineyard. The Bible speaks of God's people in terms of being fruitful really in two ways. The first is in their own personal holiness. So they bear fruit as they become more like God. Remember the the call in the Pentateuch to be holy as I am holy, echoed in books such as 1 Peter in the New Testament. Or when Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, all of those characteristics are characteristics of God. God is love. God is joy. God is peace and so on. And so to, to be fruitful is, first of all, to bear God's image to grow into his likeness. But secondly, God's people not only grow themselves, but they produce other fruit. And both aspects of fruitfulness ultimately give God more glory, honor, and power. 
So when we grow in personal holiness, it gives God glory. When we produce other fruit, it gives God glory. But God's people have always had a fruit problem. You know the story in the garden, Adam and Eve walked to the tree in the middle, the one that they were told not to eat from, and they eat from it anyways. But do you remember the first command that God gave to Adam and Eve, the first recorded command? Back in Genesis 1, right after he talks about the Imago Dei, God says this, Genesis 1, 28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So God says, yes, you are to steward the earth, but you're also to be fruitful, multiply, and fill it. God not only wants to to be worshipped by Adam and Eve in the garden, he desires an entire planet of worshipers. And so what he's telling them here is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with worshipers. But it seems that Adam and Eve don't even pass this down to their children. Because a few chapters later, Genesis 4, we see a scene with four people. You've got Adam, Eve, and their two sons, Cain and Abel. Well, Cain kills Abel, taking out a quarter of the earth's population with one stroke. That's not exactly being fruitful and multiplying that God has commanded them to do. But this mission of God would continue. Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 17, God tells Abraham to be fruitful, multiply. So you hear it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with worshipers. At this Great Commission seminary, you could quote Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But hear it fresh with this idea from the Old Testament. When Jesus says, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, teaching them, he's reiterating the command that has been there since the beginning of Scripture. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with worshipers, disciples. And then finally, John captures the end of this biblical revelation. Revelation 7, 9, he says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So be fruitful, multiply, because one day heaven will be filled with worshipers. The end of God's biblical mission since the beginning of the garden seen culminating in Revelation. So to summarize, as part of God's covenant people, he desires for us to be fruitful in our personal holiness, but also in producing more fruit, more worshipers. Both aspects give him more glory, honor, and worship. Yet here in this text, in Isaiah 5, this vine that is Israel is not producing fruit. They're not adding new fruit, and the fruit that is there, he says, is worthless. It's not good for anything. This word that's translated worthless here in verse 4 refers to sour or wild grapes. Not good for anything. You can't use them. Some of the older translations actually translate this word to stink fruit or stink berries, which I really like. God has just called his people a bunch of stink berries here in this passage. Imagine if we incorporated that into sharing our 15-second testimony. It was just a, just a stink berry before God came into my life. They're not good for nothing. The, the point that God is making here is that this fruit isn't usable. He can't use it for anything. So what would the verdict be? What would the verdict be from God's people? Again, he's asked them, what more could I have done? What more could I have done for this vineyard than I did? Well, I want you to imagine people reading this during Isaiah's time. God's people who are familiar with this imagery, many of them likely have their own vineyards. I imagine a couple of guys going down to the store and picking up their copy of the Jerusalem Gazette. 
And in there, Isaiah's got this parable that he's just published during the week. And as they're reading through this, they're, they're agreeing with everything that Isaiah is saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember when I planted my vineyard, I did all the stuff that Isaiah did here in, chap- in chapter 5. And then they continue reading this parable. And they say, oh, yeah, I would definitely waste this vineyard too. It's not good for anything. You, you can't use vines for firewood or for a house or anything. You, just, you have to get rid of it. You have to destroy it. And then these people get down to verse 7 and they say, wait, wait a minute. Come on now. There's no way that we are this vineyard and throw it away. There's no way that that we are this unfruitful vineyard. Well, Isaiah, what he's trying to do is to get the reader to see this anger from God's perspective. It's similar to 2 Samuel 12. You remember the parable that Nathan tells David after his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan comes to David and he tells this parable of a rich man who took a sheep from a poor man. And David gets so angry. He said, that man must surely die. And do you remember what Nathan says? David, you are the man. You are the man. And then this same dramatic twist, God is telling his people here in this passage, you, you are the unfruitful vine. You are the unfruitful vine. You have not produced new fruit. And the fruit that is there is worthless, totally useless. So the question for us becomes, are we being fruitful? Are your churches being fruitful? Are you producing new fruit? And are your existing disciples growing in their personal holiness? Because both aspects give glory to God. And both aspects are the reason that God has planted this vineyard. He has desired good fruit from you and I. Before we get to the last point, let me read through these last few verses, verses 5 through 7. If you'll notice in verses 5 and 6, as the Lord destroys his vineyard, there is a fourfold destruction. So first of all, this destruction is from God. Verse 5, he says, now I will tell you what I'm about to do. I will remove its hedge. I will tear down its wall. I will make it a wasteland. And I will give orders to the clouds. This destruction is from God, but it's also from the outside. I will remove its hedge, it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. Likely referring to the empires that are Assyria and Babylon during this time. These two empires take up so much space in these prophetic books. Not only is it from God and from the outside, but this destruction is also from within. Verse six, I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up within this vineyard. These two, of course, a curse of the fall back in Genesis 3, but also, again, likely referring to the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. What these two empires would do is they were taking over countries. Not only would they take some out as exiles, but they would also bring in other people groups as immigrants into the place they were taking over. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? They didn't want to see a rebellion or revolt, and how much harder is it when everybody who's there can't communicate in the same language? They can't get on the same page. So this destruction is also from within, but also finally is from nature. I will give orders to the clouds that the rain should not fall on it. So God completely, utterly destroys this unfruitful vineyard. And then if God's people have not gotten the point, verse 7 spells it out. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. 
then the final sentence sets up this contrast that he's been getting at the whole time. In the Hebrew, this text reads, he expected mishpat, but saw mishpah. And then he heard sedekah, but saw se'ekah. So you hear in the Hebrew, similar sounding words, but not the same. Again, Isaiah is highlighting the contrast between what God expected from his vineyard and then what was actually received or saw or heard. The contrast between the glory of God and the sins of Judah. Charles Spurgeon comments on these verses, quote, If in righteous wrath the divine owner of the vineyard himself lays it waste, what hope remains for it? And that's the question before you and I this morning. Is there any hope for this desolate vineyard? Is there any hope for this this unfruitful vineyard that couldn't do the one job that it had? And that leads us to our third and final point this morning. There is hope. The good news of the Bible is that there is hope for the desolate vineyard. It is this. The Lord destroys his unfruitful vineyard, but he provides the true vine for us. The Lord destroys his unfruitful vineyard, but he provides the true vine for us. Matthew 21, Jesus begins to tell this parable. Notice how he begins it. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a watchtower. All the things that God has done here in Isaiah chapter 5. And in this parable in Matthew 21, Jesus says, this landowner is God, this vineyard keeper. And if you're familiar with this parable of the tenants, what happens is that God leases out this field. But then when he sends his servants to collect the fruit of the vineyard, what happens? They beat the servants. They kill a servant. And so God, the landowner, he says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. And he sends his son, and his son dies in the vineyard. He is crushed in the vineyard. And Jesus is foreshadowing his death on the cross. Jesus would go to the cross for us, bearing the weight of the sins of the world. And just like grapes in a vineyard, Jesus would be pressed. He would be crushed for my sins, for your sins on the cross. His blood spilling out for us. Jesus is foreshadowing his death in his parable. All all this destruction that happens here in Isaiah 5, it happens to Jesus. Jesus utterly destroyed on our behalf. Jesus utterly destroyed for my sins, for your sins, crushed by the weight of the world. But the good news of the gospel does not just end with Jesus' death on our behalf. On the night of the Last Supper, with this Old Testament imagery in mind, Jesus gathers his disciples, and this is what he says to them. John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. So feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. What a beautiful picture. Whereas you and I have been so unfruitful, so unfaithful, Jesus steps in. He says, I am the true vine. He says that my father is the gardener. I will be obedient in your place. I will die in your place so that you will have life. Jesus trodden in the wine press for us. He would reiterate it a few verses later. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains or abides in me and I in him will produce much fruit. It's what God's been looking for. He's been looking for this fruitful vineyard. He says, but you can do nothing without me. 
Jesus experiences the wrath of God. Notice how he, everything that's mentioned here in Isaiah 5, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of it all. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's devotion to us. He is the gracious provision of God. He has protected us. He has prepared for us everything that God did in the vineyard pointing to Christ. And this verdict that God demands for his people, he places the punishment, this destruction on Jesus Christ. Everything in the vineyard ultimately finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads us back to our main idea. God patiently waits and expects for us to bear good fruit through his gracious provision of Christ. His plan, his mission, his mandate since the beginning, all pointing to Jesus Christ. He did not have to, but he chose to. He chose to die in my place, in your place, to be trampled in the vineyard on behalf of us, the unfaithful wife, the unfruitful vineyard. So what does this mean for us? Let me close with three points of of application. First, you and I must acknowledge our own inadequacy as vines. We must acknowledge our own inadequacy as vines. When it comes to the one job that you and I were given here in Isaiah 5, as it's spelled out, it turns out that we are woefully inadequate. Imagine Isaiah saying this in his culture to the people of God saying you are to be fruitful, this one thing that God has given to you and you, eh, you didn't do it so well. You haven't done it at all. And friends, the the culture that you and I live in here, 21st century, is increasingly more hostile to this message. Paul would write that this is foolish to the world. It's foolish to say in a world that believes everyone is intrinsically good, every religion is intrinsically the same, all religions lead to life, it just matters if you're genuine to it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. This is the exclusivity of the gospel. Only the good news of Jesus Christ will lead to life. We are woefully inadequate as vines, which leads us to the second point of application. We must also abide in Jesus, our true vine. Jesus interprets this vineyard as as we are the branches. We're still pieces of the vine, but ultimately we must be connected to him to find true life. We are are branches. Uh, Abiding in Jesus looks like a relationship with Jesus, praying with him, being in his word, meditating on the scriptures. It, it, It should frighten us how much ministry we can do without abiding in Jesus. It should frighten us how much ministry you and I can do without abiding in Jesus. What if it's possible for you and I to go through seminary, to learn how to exegete the text of scripture, to learn how to parse verbs, to learn how to share the gospel, but never abide in Jesus? Perhaps, perhaps that's why we see so many ministers burn out. Either they never abided in Jesus or they simply stopped later on. And as a result, they stopped bearing fruit both in their own life and in the lives of others. And so I'd encourage you in seminary to to see this time in your life, not as a charging station that lasts for one to two to, to eight years, however long it takes you. Don't see it as a charging station, but maybe see it as a place where you learn how to abide, maybe for the first time in your life. It's only through Jesus that life comes. And to continue this vineyard imagery, once a fruit becomes disconnected from the vine, it's already dead. 
No, it may look healthy for a while. It may even be good to eat for a while. But make no mistake, once a fruit becomes disconnected from the vine, it is already dying. Friends, would you abide in Jesus for your ministry? It's only through him that life comes. And then finally, number three, we must adore God the Father, our vineyard keeper. Jesus makes this application also in John 15. John 15, verse 8, he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, and that you prove to be my disciples. It's both aspects of fruitfulness that we've talked about this morning, both our personal holiness and producing other fruit. God is glorified by this. I mean, think about it. How silly would it be for you and I to go to a garden? What if we drove down the road to to Duane and Kay's garden and we began to look in the garden and we began to squat down and talk to the fruit and the vegetables and we say, wow, you guys are looking really good today. Good job growing. Duane would have a lot of questions for us. Why? Well, because he's the one who's provided for his garden. He's the one who has planted it. He's the one who has watered it. He's the one who's made sure it has enough sun. These fruit haven't done anything except to to take in the nutrients, to take in the sun. And so it is with God. How silly would it be for us to pat ourselves on the backs and say, wow, well done, good and faithful servant. You're producing a lot of fruit. No, the glory, the honor, and the worship goes to God, our great vineyard keeper, If there's anything good in us as fruit, if there's anything good in us as vines or branches, it is because of the gracious provision and devotion of our heavenly vineyard keeper. This morning, Isaiah chapter 5 has presented us with a paradox, fruitless vines. But God has desired and wanted fruitful vines. He wants us to produce much fruit. And through his gracious provision of Christ, he has provided the means for us to do so and to fulfill the mandate, the command that he has wanted from us the whole time. So friends, let me encourage you to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth with worshipers. Let's pray. Father, we do praise and adore you. We thank you so much for the provision of your son. You have paid a debt for us that we could never hope to repay but we thank you that you have included us in this mission of the cross, this mission to be fruitful, multiply, and to make worshipers of all the earth because one day heaven will be filled with worship of you. So Father, I pray for these students, these faculty this morning, anyone else watching, I pray that you would just entrust in our hearts, ingrain in our minds what it means to be fruitful. I pray for our personal holiness and our production of more fruit that leads to more worship of you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.